You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. No forewarning, Bracken, it's on. See how well you know me. What was I doing this morning and yesterday morning? Well, I believe you said you were on your last camping trip of the year last weekend. Correct. If that were the case, then that eliminates my first answer. So what were you doing yesterday morning? You were probably glued to your computer phone watching live results. That's what I'm guessing. I was, but I was also watching something else, Kirk. Okay. Chicago Marathon yesterday, Boston Marathon today. Yeah. Which is wild that there are marathon majors in the U.S. on back-to-back days. Well, and seeing Boston in the fall is a little weird, too. Just a different year, of course, but kind of felt like a like a fanboy this weekend. A lot of races to watch. I, I announced Savage Race Saturday. And then Saturday night, Sunday morning, tuned in to Spartans broadcast the 24-hour ultra championship. Sunday morning, watching Chicago. This morning, watching Boston. It was just nothing but tuning into other people's races all weekend long. It was glorious. What are the feelings you're having while watching and now after watching? You feeling inspired, uninspired, slow and pathetic? Everything. Uh, fast and ready? Everything at different points. Yeah. But I think the biggest takeaway is what I want to talk about today. But before we even get to that, we have such a queue of questions. We did two hours of answering Q&As, and we're, we still have like 20 left. So let's just knock a couple of them out. And we'll start each episode for the next week or two with like two or three quick hitters, and then we'll move on. This is how many questions we got. Um, I have 29 screenshots still that we haven't touched. Jeez. And I found two that I didn't get to. Just these knowledge hungry humans out there just looking for answers. I love it. So I think, I think that's best. Bracken said, I said, Bracken, we should do another Q and a today. And he said, nah, Kirk, Q and a fatigue, bro. We can't be facilitating that. So I got, I got squashed, but I think starting with two would be good. I mean, I would do a Q and a every time they're enjoyable for me, but, but I also feel like I want to talk about what I watched this weekend. So we'll do a little bit of both. All right, so we'll start off with two, and then I'll take these off the list, and we'll be down to 27 screenshots. Ooh, easy peasy. All right, this one uh, comes from Adam Beach, OCR. It says, I have another question for the next Q&A. I remember talk, this is you, by the way, so I'm putting this one on you, Bracken. I remember talk of ATP on energy source that provides free energy, in quotes, for a short time at the beginning of a race. I am wondering if doing hard strides right before a race uses up that ATP. Valid question. Very valid question. Yeah, yeah. The, the it's and it's the phosphocreatin bonds. Those, those. That's your free ten to twenty seconds worth of energy, but they take a little time to regenerate. So, in theory, any bursty, twitchy activity will burn through that. So, yeah, if you do it right before, in theory, yes, it's gone. Those bonds are kind of like the kindling when you start a fire, like that kindling, that light dry wood or newspaper, you light it, it lights fast, burns hot, 
and then it's out and then the fire starts at like that slow burn, which is your real energy system, which would be the fire. Now, science tells us that our ATP stores are typically restored fully or within 97 to 99% within two minutes of them being used up. So hypothetically, in this situation, as long as you have two or more minutes, from my understanding, from your last stride, your ATP should be recharged for you to have your fast out of the gates uh, fire. So from what I know, in the strength training world, at least, which should translate to the same type of energy source, you should be good from what I know. It's, I mean, I don't, I don't know this a hundred percent for sure, but it's why you see 800 meter runners, 400 meter runners, milers, people who are most affected by fast starts, but then have to settle into a sustainable pace sitting or just leaning up against their, their starting area before they, before they go. You see a lot of high school and college kids jumping around like crazy and doing last minute little like bursty sprinty things on their way up. But these guys don't, they jog up and they sit there. It's because they've got their warm up, they're ready to go. And they don't want to, I mean, in, in a race that's 60 seconds to three minutes long, somewhere in there, plus or minus 15 seconds from there, you don't want to err on the wrong side of anything, even two or three seconds worth. So yeah, they don't want to yeah. burn anything those last two to three minutes. Uh, Nick Simmons is famous for it. A lot of times they have those big like, uh, conical plastic lane markers that they move out behind the water. I mean, the, the Stegert started the 800 meter dash mm -hmm. and he would just sit there and just lean back and chill up against it. And I, I, I firmly believe that's why calm yourself down, make sure everything's restored and then you can blast out fast and not have to worry about not using your phosphocreatin bonds. Yeah, that's a good point, but I do believe they do recharge. So point being with that is like, just don't be lighting them up you know, 30 seconds to a minute before your race goes off, give yourself a five minute buffer, which we all do because we get stuck in the start corral anyways at any race. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the flip kind of, we could go down this rabbit hole further, but there's the flip side of the coin, which is pickups and extended hard stuff during your warm up also gets that lactate buffer potentially started. And it also can make the shock of the start a little less abrasive. So like there's that benefit as well, like just starting to buffer lactate a little bit in your warm up could outweigh the benefits of losing that big spur off the start line to start with. So you could argue either side of that coin. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would always err on the side of more warm up, And then I would rather sit and have to be stationary for two to three minutes prior to my race rather than warm up all the way to the start and not maybe get all my systems worked through. hundred percent. That's a good question. Mr. Beach. Good question. That is a good question. Well done, sir. Mr. Beach, your photo's just been eliminated. Next, delete photo, Mr. Beach. Only 26 uh, left. Uh, this is from Micah D7. What's your recommendation for remaining satiated while still eating a healthy diet? I find that I get extremely hungry at times, and often food with lower nutritional value feels like it's the only thing that fills me up. For context, I have a high metabolism. Okay. Yeah, when you talk, when you talk uh, feeling sated, fats are the first word that come to my mind. That if you don't have enough fats in your diet, you won't feel sated. A lot of times that's why if you have a big salad with all like, you can you can have all the fancy uh, superfood components to it as you want, and you're just ravenous afterwards. But if you just add meat to it, you're more full. Yeah, meat's dense and it's heavy and it's, but really there's fat involved. You know, adding 
adding avocado and some fatty meat. I'm one of those people. I don't cut the fat off my meat when I'm in a big training block mm -hmm. because I need to feel sated. So that's where I start fat. Yep. Fat. You nailed it. Um, and granted your like biological markers are sound, meaning cholesterol and blood pressure and all of that. Fatty meats get a bad rap, but in fact, like salmon twice a week, uh, red meat once a week, like the fatty red meat, maybe like ground, you know, beef one week and then like a leaner cut of steak, you know, once a week. And there you're at four meals with a high fat protein content. Then the rest can be your chicken breast and your other things or pork or whatever it is. But like high fat content's huge. I mean, I probably go to my cupboard and grab a scoop of almond butter or peanut butter three to five times a day because it just sits well. I have a bag of cashews I'm constantly gnawing on and I probably have 10 avocados sitting on my cupboard. Um, it works. You're just missing fat. It's absolutely what it is. And, and maybe and maybe you're under eating a little bit early in the day, um, which also seems to be the habit of a lot of people. You eat light in the morning, keeps you light on your feet, don't have an appetite. Try throwing a thousand calorie breakfast in your system in the morning and see if that changes, no matter what the, the context uh, or the content of that breakfast is. Um, those are the two traps. But I think fat leads the way. And then second would be eating more early in the day. That always works. Um, and then third, I guess, is you got to watch your caffeine intake. For me, if I have a huge meal, but then drink a big cup of coffee, I'm hungry two hours later, no matter what it was. So that affects people too. So something to think about just in relation to your hunger. So you're a butter scooper during the day. That's your go-to? Almond butter, peanut butter. Usually Justin's almond butter. That stuff is, they just nailed that product. You know what Lisa got me on recently for my snack now? Cottage mm. cheese with hot sauce on it. You scoop that up with tortilla chips and it is so shockingly good. That sounds good. I don't think I ate cottage cheese for the first 33 years of my life. And I never have hot sauce. And she said, just try this. I'm like, no, I, I don't like either component there. She said, just try it. She forced me to. There was no consent in this first snack that we had. And it was so good. And now probably four times a week, I have cottage cheese with hot sauce on it. And I scoop it up with all the tortilla chips. Cottage cheese sits well too. It's like better than like the other cheeses. Plus it morphs into whatever you put on it. You want a sweet cottage cheese? Dabble some honey on there. Hmm. You want it spicy? You want a little fiesta? Throw that hot sauce on there. It works. That's a good idea. Also, full fat yogurt. If you're doing dairy, just the full fat Greek yogurt. Most people buy like the light and fit and all that complete bullshit with artificial sweeteners and all the fat sucked out. You're an idiot. Full fat. Full fat everything. Maybe just misinformed. No, idiot. <laughs> what an idiot. Listen, I'll call my shots here. <laughs> all right. And I'm going to say misinformed. <laughs> <laughs> keep it political over there and later on down the road when you need a coach you come to me not kirk he's a big old bully uh, people want to be real talk bracket there are, there are a lot of people who need that tough love kirk you'll get more requests off that comment than i will we'll see we will see um i feel like you're gonna do most of the talking today brackenstein because this is kind of your brain child i was not watching anything this weekend i was up on the canadian border with no service Ooh, I like uh, that. in my own camper yeah in my unnamed camper so um, I'm out of touch. You know what? This actually has nothing to do with the race. Just my takeaways from the race. So I, you're, you're going to have plenty to plenty to contribute here. So here, here's my takeaway. I watched a Savage Race, which is an obstacle course race for any of our non-obstacle listeners. We had a listener last week message and say, I feel foolish asking this, but what is OCR? I said, that's a great question. Well, the R is kind of redundant. Obstacle course racing. Because we say OCR racing all the time, which yeah. is like a... I did an OCR race. 
because it sounds weird to say an OCR. Anyways, we don't care if you know about OCR. We don't care if you like it because to be honest, we were runners long before we did OCR. And if OCR ever went away, we'd still be runners. We all would be. We appreciate you listening anyways. So I watched, I commentated a savage race. I watched highlights of a 24 hour OCR race at altitude in Telluride. And I watched the entire New York marathon. I'm sorry, Chicago marathon and Boston marathon. So you just lived life vicariously this weekend instead of living it yourself. Is that what I'm understanding? Also did a two hour ski hill workout on Saturday. So I lived my life well, Kirk. Nicely done. The big takeaway was, you know, who won every single race? Who? Whoever could make a move in the latter stages of the race. It wasn't who won the first mile. It wasn't who won the first half. Sometimes it wasn't even who won the first three quarters. It was who hadn't burnt all their matches and could still make moves at the end of the race. And that spoke Mm -hmm. to two things to me. First of all, it spoke to knowing your fitness. It's Mm -hmm. really difficult to nail your pacing if you don't know your fitness. And we can break down how and why that occurs later. But the second thing is, it's the people that didn't do anything early. Didn't make moves early, didn't burn matches early, didn't get excited early, didn't read into the false flags early. It was the people who hurry up and waited. They just hurried up and waited. Every time they thought, time to throttle down, they eased back a little bit more and just waited. And that is not the type of racing that most of us do. Most of us get into a race and we're not the fastest person there. So the race becomes start out with that gallop of people at the front who everyone's burning off those phosphate creatine bonds, maybe foolishly because you don't have to do that. You could walk off the start line and be just fine. Mo Farah did it at the Olympics for years, Mm -hmm. but we all gallop out. And then all you can do is slowly get dropped because you're running someone else's pace because you're just going to try to stay with them because they're better and you want to do better. And then you get to the two-third mark and you're just trying to hang on and you're not going anywhere positive. That's how we race. But we should all race. We should all take a lesson from the people who win their races because they get the most out of themselves. So that's my really long intro. Oh, it was an adequately long intro, Bracken. You're a professional. You nail those intros. I think, um, I, you know, you use a term like feathering the gas, right? Yeah. And I would say that people who succeeded, I mean, I just looked at the results, so I didn't see it play out, but I saw the updates and I saw lead changes and I saw those things. Um, you're, feathering, you're feathering the gas is what you're doing, both in and out of things. And that means you're not fully burning a match. An analogy I had this weekend, which was kind of plays into this is I pulled my camper four and a half hours north to the Canadian border to International Falls to visit Jess's family. Um, and I, it was, it's rolling hills on the way up. And typically I get about 300 miles to a tank of gas in my truck. And if I was conservative and I was smart and I feathered the gas on the way up, maybe I would have came close and got 275 pulling that camper, but not me. I don't got that sort of patience nor that fuel economy. And I got about 200 miles to a tank pulling that camper because I took every hill aggressively. I took every advantage of every downhill, pounded it to get some momentum built. And I lost about 100 miles of gas out of that tank. And know what happened? would have happened at the end? I would have been out of gas. It would have been shit out of luck. And I would have not managed my energy or my fuel well. And I feel like that almost can be reminiscent of what happened in some of these races. People 
um, matching surges when it wasn't the right time to somebody saying, Oh, I got a gap and I'm two hours into a 24 hour race. Let's lose them around this corner. You're just pushing the gas pedal up those hill, dragging a camper. And that's super inefficient. Mm-hmm. I lost all that time stopping to get gas twice. Didn't make any sense. Right. So anyways, I don't know if that made sense or not, but that's, that's my relation to what I just did this week. Well, that's exactly it. And early on, what, We all think, anyone who isn't a master of pacing, we all think two things. The first is that we've always seen people have breakthroughs. And their answer is, I went out and I committed to the pace. I threw myself in the race. I committed to it. And I hung on longer than I thought I could. Mm -hmm. But that is not because they outraced their fitness. It is because their fitness was better than it has been in the past. And they were not fully aware of how high their fitness was. Yeah. If you put in a fantastic block of training and you haven't raced or you haven't taken a chance in a race, you might not realize that you've leveled up. So that's when breakthroughs come where it looks like you've outrun your fitness, but you really haven't. You've just caught up to your fitness with your racing. So that's the first thing we all think I need to put myself in it. What I want to kind of interrupt real quick and do is could you outline in the three races, New York, Boston, and then the Spartan Ultra World Championships, where that race lead was taken and never relinquished from that point just for like an outline so we can understand i think that would be important can you do that do you remember yeah yeah so in let's start with the longest or no let's just go most recent because it was the most dramatic in boston this morning uh the women just ran out pretty much conservatively they ran in a big pack nel rojas led laid into the race Mm, didn't know that. Uh, it was a big, it was basically Nell and then a group of Kenyans and Ethiopians. Amazing, by the way. Amazing. It's pretty awesome to watch. And she got a lot of screen time and she got a lot of uh, the commentators' words. So really cool to see Nell out there proving her previous results were not flukes. In the Olympic trials. Yeah. And the race that she jumped into grandma's, I believe it was prior to, was it grandma's or was it CIM? And she, I think it was grandma's and she won it. She smashed it. She I ran believe. like 231. It was a crazy fast debut. And then she ran Olympic trials and was awesome. And now it, 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 she's new to it, but she is, she is proving her results. Correct. Anyway, yep. the men's field though. Well, wait, what about the women's field? Sorry. Who ended up, she ended up getting overtook when a big move got made with probably, I mean, it was relatively early. I would say it was at mile. Oh, now I'm going to get it wrong because I watched two marathons this weekend. I would say somewhere around 18 to 20 a move was made, which is kind of early in a marathon, which is kind of the point we're talking about here. But a move was made. The pack was splintered. One girl went out. One girl, not a girl. One woman ran out really strong. And uh, Diane Kipyagai, and she gapped the pack and then she got caught. And you thought like, oh, this is where it happens. And as soon as someone caught her, she just ran with her and then made a second move with maybe two miles hmm. to go, three miles. She wasn't her. bluffing. Yeah. yeah, she wasn't bluffing. And she had more in the tank. However, on the men's side, CJ Albertson, I'm going to rewind for one more second. Boston starts downhill. Mm-hmm. The first mile is relatively downhill the entire way. And everyone knows this. And everyone knows this is where you can bank a little time, but you can't get caught up into running off effort on this because it lies Mm. to you. It's the start of a major marathon. The crowd support in Boston is crazy and it's downhill, but still people get caught up in, well, maybe I'll just bank like 10 or 15 seconds because it's such a fast mile. Well, he went out in 432. 
Oh boy. And then was like 441, 447, 450. By this point, he has a 400 meter lead on the field and just committed to it. So he goes through the half in, I want to say 64 low. Still with the lead. 208 pace. And he is two minutes ahead of the pack because they went through and they're running 216 pace, which is dawdling by every person in that follow-up pack, dawdling mm-hmm. by their standards. He was running his race as he knew it. Well, I'm going to say no because he PR'd his half through the half. Okay, not ideal. Yeah. So no, he's gone out way too hard, but he committed to it. I mean, there's a lot going on. He didn't have the trials he wanted. It was his birthday today. He just, the stars aligned to, to shoot for it. And I have never watched a more painful and more gutsy last half marathon in my life. He was full on unable to run his normal stride. And he had a two minute lead, a two minute lead, a two minute lead, 140. 5K later, 54 seconds. Like it's, oh. It starts dropping. He was running 1440, 1450, 1520, 1630. So just atrophying, bleeding out time left and right. And then he gets caught at, he was the leader through 20. Mm. That always goes to show, you see that all the time, but like when you get those twinges of ambition early in a race, like I'm feeling good. I'm a third into this thing. It's time to go. Guess what? That twinge of ambition is going to be there if you just save it mm-hmm. for later. And so it's like the two thirds of a race rule. Like you never act on that impulse. In my opinion, in a long race over two hours, you do not act on that impulse until that final two thirds of a race. Uh, I wouldn't even say the first half because I think that's a mistake. Um, and it's, and he went with that impulse. He was like, I'm feeling good. I'm going with it today. But like anything over two hours doesn't lie. We say the marathon doesn't lie. Bills come due no matter what at some point. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I don't know. That's a good takeaway right from there. Like that ambition you feel early. How many times has that bit you in the ass when you've acted on it? Every time for me, I don't know about you. Every time, every time that you're not the most talented person in the field. Correct. And it had to have felt awesome. He's running through Boston, an American man leading a world marathon race, a major marathon race, the crowd going crazy, and then he just fell apart. And to his credit, I think 12 men passed him, and he latched on the best he could, and he finished strong. He didn't crack. How much did he lose? How much did he uh, trail behind the winner by? Do you know? At least two minutes in the last six miles, five miles. But he finished strong. It was incredible. But most people couldn't even do what he did and hang on. Right. Yeah. Look at Atkins in the North American champs in Tahoe. He bided his time. How would you say that in past tense? Bided Bid his, his time. time. Bid his time. Bided. Bided? That can't be right. He was biding he his bide. time. He, he, he bided his time. We'll go. He bided his time. <laughs> he bought some time. He bought some time. Right. That doesn't, that wouldn't apply either. Somebody help us here. Um, but anyways, and then when it was time to go, he made the move. He made the final move. There was no return on that, and he won. Yeah. And I'm sure everybody that you're outlining did the same thing. Mark Godet and the Ultra World Champs, uh, the list will go on. But continue. But just outlining that same that same storyline written out over and over again in every race that lasts two hours or longer. Same thing happened in Chicago. Fields go out for the men, very in control. 
fast, but in control. And there's a big pack. It gets whittled down, whittled down, whittled down. It's down to six. Suddenly it moves made. It's down to three. Suddenly it moves made and someone wins. Mm-hmm. Female side was a little different. Uh, a, a, a woman went out at world record pace and crumbled and hung on. But she was also the best runner in the field. So like that's the one exception to the rule. But she ended up running a time that would not be a time that she would be proud of if it were a time trial day. So she didn't PR, she won, but she was supposed to win. And then in the 24 mm-hmm. hour race, uh, Mark Gaudet and Tyler Veerman ran together every step of the way until the final lap, every step of the way. Behind Miguel Medina for how long? Like 12 hours? Something like that, yeah. But they they just casually moved up. And they were in fifth and sixth, and then they were in fourth and fifth, and then they were in third and fourth, and then second and third, and then first and second. And they just worked calm, and they just kept working. And in an ultra, it's less about making a move, and it's more about slowing down less than everyone else slows down around you. It may Mm -hmm. feel like you're making a move, but really you're just bleeding out slower than everyone else. But again, it's Mm -hmm. because everything you burn early comes due double or triple later. And and there were some things that you see in these longer races where when people have something go wrong, what you've done up until that point determines how well you can get through it. So we've seen shoe malfunctions in races or lacing come undone. Miguel had a lace break early in the race, but there are times when that just ends people's day. You just can't get back on track after that. And then there's times like Eliab Kipchoge where the insoles of his shoes were flapping out the back out of his heel, but because he was in control when it started happening, he was still able to accelerate and win the race. Wait, what what is this situation? Hold on. His his inserts started sliding out and cupping up the back of his heel and sticking up? Yeah, he had a prototype version of I believe it was the Nike Streak back then, and the insoles were not secured and glued down and they worked their way back out of his shoe that's like the ocr version of your insoles bunching up in your toe box on your first wet descent that happens all the time to people it does so his heel was basically holding the toe of the insole in the shoe and the rest was flapping behind him and he won the race i think it was it was either london or berlin back in the day before the whole super shoe revolution came around Uh, there are people you hear of that injure themselves in a race or bang themselves up or do something where it's you're hurt more than you're injured. But when your matches have been burnt, it takes you out. And when you have moves to make, you can absorb those things and move on. So there's almost no situation ever where being under control hurts you in a race, but we always, always avoid it. Always. And I think the thing is, and I know I'm talking way too much today, Kirk, but I'm passionate about this right now. Having just watched it. Maybe not. Yeah, it's like somebody whispering my ear in my ears when you talk back, and it's just sultry. Sultry. Continue. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> like butter, sweet, sweet molasses. I think we look at elites and pros, and we put them on a pedestal, and they deserve that pedestal in terms of awe of their performance. But we shouldn't isolate their tactics. Just like we talked about, mm-hmm. we can't do what the pros do, but we have to do the percentages of what they do, the ratios of what they do, because we know that works. We can't run the paces they run, but we should run the tactics they run for the most part. Agreed. And we look at those pros and say, well, yeah, they're so good. They can sit calm and relax for a half marathon and then take off and set a PR. Like, well, why can't you? 
The difference is you're not going to be running with that pace group necessarily that you want to be at the first half of the race. And that's going to be depressing to you because you're going to see 500 people ahead of you. But you don't get judged on how you come through the halfway point. You get judged on how you come through the finish. And the only possible way, we've said this on here before, to run your best time is to be closing and making moves in the second half of the race. And so if I look back Mm -hmm. on my best time trials I've ever run, Kirk, they're all when I'm closing. When I have a decision to make at the halfway point and at the three quarters point. And no matter how fit I am, my time trials are terrible when I get out harder than I'm capable of. And I'm just holding on. You never, like, no matter what you gain the first half, you give back by not being able to negative split that second half. And we forget that our bodies still follow the same laws of nature that the freaks of nature follow. They just follow them faster. Yeah. Well, this, this comes with the, the caveat that we know our bodies well, which half the people out there probably aren't as in tune with their bodies Mm -hmm. as these elite athletes. So there is something measured about calculated decisions that the elite pros make versus us. But you do have, I mean, if you've been doing this for years, you should be somewhat in touch with your body. But just echoing what you had said, I have never PR'd without the last third or quarter of my race or time trial being my fastest split in the entire thing. In college, even on the collegiate level, in adulthood on the roads, or whatever it may be, or in any OCR grungy race I've run, I wouldn't doubt that I closed as hard or harder than I started. And I can't think of a time in which the opposite happened. Maybe back in your day when you're running 800 meters and it's just the way it's done, but I don't even know. And maybe you could extend that up to the mile, maybe. But I don't think I've ever seen it done in a 5K or longer. I'm sure somebody could point me in that direction. But I can't think of anything off the top of my head, even on the pro level. Can you? No. And they've done a lot of research showing uh, ideal energy expenditure percentages, first half, first, second half of races. Mm -hmm. And 800 meters is the final race where it's definitively better to get out slightly faster than you're going to finish. Okay. Well, there you go. That's That's the last event where it's actually beneficial to start faster than you intend on keeping the whole way. But again, that's that's partly because of phosphocreatin bonds. You can get almost 200 meters of energy before you start actually having to work. And so you've got to get out fast enough to absorb that. But even then, I think it's something like a oh, 94. Like it's like a 6% swing either way. It's not like you go out at 120% and you finish at 80. It's still not even that. They still want it pretty bunched together. It's just slightly tipped in the favor of the first half of the race. Well, just reflecting what you said on those listening, like... How many of you are lining up for an 800 or a mile in, right. in your current adult life? The opportunities are literally zero if, unless you're doing some old timers track club. So basically the rules apply is knowing your body and being conservative is typically the correct answer in almost every situation in which you're going to tow a starting line in your adult non-collegiate type life. Yes. Really? A hundred percent of the time. And, and the question that that begs is how do I know if I know my body? And it's one of those, if you have to ask, you can't afford it kind of things. Like, of course you don't know your body. Most of us don't. Like when we're at our maximum fitness level and we put in years and years and years, yeah, we know our body pretty well, but that's kind of the beauty of it. This doesn't rely on you to guess high to know your body. Negative splitting relies on you to guess low. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the positive takeaway to all this is that You can race yourself into shape. We've talked about that physically, but you can race yourself into proper pacing as well. But it relies holding back in the first half 
or at least the first mm-hmm. quarter until you know, because we've all done a run, Kirk, where we go out and you start picking it up and picking it up and picking it up. And suddenly you look down, you're like, my last 5k was only X number off my fastest, or was only my last five miles was only a minute off my five mile PR. And I did it in an eight or nine mile run because you built into it. And then the effort diminishes as you gradually build in. But we've also all had that race where we go out and we run a hard pace and end up cracking and running a time we can run in training. Yep. So we've 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 both experienced that. Only one of them guarantees success. If you go out too slow, you will absolutely be able to pick the pace up as you go. But if you go out too fast, you will absolutely not be able to pick the pace up as you go. And so the easy answer is you get yourself a set of races. You jump in trail races, you jump in road races, you jump in OC whatever it is, and you start at a rev limiter. You say, I know that this is a pace that can't blow me up. So I'm going to give myself 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 60 minutes or 80 minutes, whatever the length of your race is, you pick a number and say, I will not exceed this. I know I can do this no matter what effort until this time. And then I get to work. And if I get to the finish line and I've picked it up every single mile and I'm like, oh my goodness, I have a ton left. Now you raise that bar up slightly. But that's how you find your fitness. But it's not a it's not a handicap to not know your fitness. It's kind of a it's an extra benefit of I get to go out intentionally a little slow because I have to find out what my fitness is. Well, tell me this: what is like the biggest? What is the biggest detriment to going out conservatively or too easy? Tell me, like, what is the one fear, the one negative of that? I'll never catch back up. I'll never catch back up or I won't run my best time Mm -hmm. potentially. Right. But also the best way to learn your body and to actually know what it's capable of is not to start out hard and then bleed home and fade home. You learn jack shit. Yeah. You learn way less when you do that. I shouldn't say jack shit, but you learn significantly less when you do that than slowly working into the effort and pounding home. Because what happens when you really try to get dialed in is you just start a little faster the next time. And you, that's your next starting point. And then you do the same thing. And eventually you get really dialed in and not to get too far into the weeds with this or tangent, but this also goes for workouts too. I mean, still you coach a bunch of athletes. I coach a bunch of athletes and I'm going to say still 50% of my athletes are going out too hard in their workouts and their last splits are the slowest of their workout. No matter how trained they are, it still seems to happen. But like, what's the worst that happens? For example, I did 1200, I did six by 1200 meter repeats on Saturday with a quarter mile jog recovery. Okay. And I said, I know 520 pace is well within my limits. And I'm going to go 520 pace, 515, 510, 505. And then I'm going to take the governor off. And you know what happened? I finished in 449 and then 439 pace for my last 1200 meters. Smashed it. Did I leave some time on the table early? Maybe. But guess what? I also left that workout feeling accomplished as shit. And I got everything I needed out of those last two reps and all those work on the first four reps built me up. So I got pretty much all the maximum gain I could get out of that workout anyways, because I had some in the tank and I sunk my teeth into it. What did I leave on the table in total time? Five to 10 total seconds, maybe 15 through that whole workout. I don't know. And the same goes for racing. Start conservative, work your way up. And if you leave a little time on the table, guess what? I'll start that workout next time at 515 and work it down. Yeah. And I'll get super dialed in. So point being, and not to talk about my own workout or how well it went, but 
The same applies for the race. And if you go that way, you're always going to cross that finish line feeling invigorated, feeling like you accomplished what you did. You're not going to feel like you left anything on the table. So I just want to like outline that because that bleeds into your training style as well. Those who go out too hard fade home. Well, then their tendency is to do that in a race as well. It's all their body knows. So just something to think about. You should put that into practice in your extended intervals. I think it's just what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. And it also allows you to get a higher volume of training in. If you were to start your workout at five flat or 445, you would have got, I don't know, 60, maybe 70% of the workload in that you got and you would have blown up. Correct. But you got, you got maybe up to 50% more reps done because you built into it. And that's just added engine work right there. That, that only helps you long-term. Yep. And in a, in a game in which we're all training, what did I do? Six reps of that. What is that? Just shy. It's like four and a half miles of quality work. Mm-hmm. In the game we play of this sport, we're not racing much less than three miles. And most of the time it's well over four and a half. So being able to extend the duration of your quality work typically only benefits you in the longer races we're doing. So it's another check mark in the start conservative column, which then will train your body to maybe do that comfortably in a race, perform well. Now there's a complaint we get from athletes often, and that is, I can't even catch up to people until halfway through the race. The first couple of miles, they're just too fast. I can't do it. And I end up running the same pace as them the second half. And sometimes I catch them, sometimes I don't, but I just need to be able to hang with them for the first mile or two. And it's a very logical mindset to have. And, and there are workouts we can do to work on that. And not to interrupt. It's a logical mindset. If you're also trying to jump tiers of racing yes. potentially, Risking it once in a while is okay. We're not saying it's not, but continue. But the reality, and there's a lot of people who might cringe when I say this, is that that just means you're not as fast as them yet. That just means that they are better runners than you currently. Because if you can't catch them quite yet, but you're closing on them at closing them down towards the end, or you're holding the same pace as them, it means that they're able to go out too hard and they settle back to your pace. Whereas you start out at your pace and you rise up closer to theirs, you're getting a higher percentage out of your race than they actually are. They're just starting out harder and fading a bit, which means they're actually a notch or two better than you in terms of running. And there is no shame in that because there's only one person who can be the absolute best in the world. And sometimes even that's up for debate. So not being the fastest runner is not a shameful thing. So I think it should be more of a badge of honor knowing that I'm always closing on people, but I'm not able to stick with them at the beginning. That means you're running closer to your highest ceiling than they are. That's all that means. And and you're going to earn it when you get it. You can practice going out faster, but if you tip over the moment you get out faster, that means you're racing at capacity right now. And that's okay. It just means that, that, that that next pack maybe isn't quite accessible to you yet. But it doesn't mean change your race strategy necessarily, unless you think you're really going out too slow. But if you just physically can't keep them in sight the first two miles, it means you're just not capable of that yet. So you don't change your mm-hmm. race strategy. You just keep working on getting more and more fit so that you can hopefully close that gap. But the fact that you're closing means that you're racing rather than hanging yeah. on. Yeah. And there's exceptions to everything and what we're talking mm-hmm. about. There are the type who never really even know what it's like to race because they never have even gotten themselves there before. 
they do maybe go out too conservative mm-hmm. or they, they cut themselves short and they don't give themselves enough credit and they go too easy for their two capabilities. We're not really addressing that, I suppose. No. And they're, and they're the type like the Ryan Kempsons of the world who just needed to go out too hot every single race until he freaking stuck. And I get it. That works. But generally nine out of 10 times, what we're talking about is the recipe to win or at least run your best race. Yeah. Um, I would, I would say it'd be hard to argue with that. I, I would, I would say. Yeah. And there's a, trying to think how to say this doesn't have to be perfect Bracken. you can upset some people well it's just that there's this... idiots. no no that's that's not the, <laughs> that's not the angle i'm going here okay. there's this mindset that if i'm not hurting i'm not trying but the reality is that if you run the race correctly you don't keep a static level of hurt the whole time mm-hmm. because if you hurt from the beginning you're setting yourself up to hurt at the end at a much slower pace It's a constant balancing act of when can I go all in on misery? And you can't get there too early. And so if you look at the best people again, the reason oftentimes they look like they're in control is because they might be in control. They are in control. They're in extreme discomfort, but they don't go to that no, like there's no button left to be push point until they know it's safe to do so. So there's this runner's world poster that my brother, maybe not even a poster, it was just a single page that he ripped out of a magazine. He put it on his wall with all his running stuff when he was uh, probably late middle school, early high school. So I was late high school and I always loved it and I hated it. And it was this all black, like blacked out track with white wording. And it said, one lap to go, your choice. And I always loved it because it just got me fired up. Like, oh my goodness, there's nothing like the bell lap getting to the bell lap still in the race. That that word choice is quite operative though. It is because I always feel like the choice comes prior to that. Once you get 100%. to the bell lap, you're in it. You either have a choice to make or you don't in a sense. Yeah. The, the, the choice came not to give up earlier. If you make it to the bell lap, you're in it. You're willing to die out there kind of mentality. Like I will fall off a cliff here to stay with you. It just comes down to, am I fast enough the last lap? But what I, what, and and I just didn't like that they imply there's a choice that late. The choice is arriving there with a button to push. Cause it's not a choice at that point. It's a gear. You have a gear left or you don't. But if you make it that far in the race, you made that choice long ago. And so I always thought it was more of get to one lap to go with a choice, which I agree with. Like you want, options in your race. And we've talked about it when we when we previewed Utah that the worst feeling in the world, especially on a big mountain race at altitude, is getting to the top of a climb, not in the second half of the race yet, and realizing that's the fastest I'll move today. I have yep. no choices left. I have no gears left. I now am simply surviving. And that applies to every race. Every like you said, all your PRs come from races where you made moves. You have to have the option and the energy to make a move or your race will not be your best race. And I don't care if you're front of the pack, middle of the back, back of the pack. The goal is still to get to the finish line as fast as you personally can. And oftentimes concerning yourself with positioning early removes your choice to get there fast late. And that's what I really want people to grasp is that it's not about always throw yourself into the mix no matter what. It is run my best possible race. And don't confuse racing with racing. Battling with people is not necessarily racing. 
to me, racing is running as fast as possible using all the smartest tactics to get there. But getting into a surge, surge, surge battle early, that's not racing. That's wasting. That's just purely wasting energy. So don't say, I'm racing. No, racing implies relaxing for a long time before you start to really, really rev. Relaxed is smooth and smooth is fast. Is any of that, is that all coming through? Well, of course it's coming through. And if you if you talk about like, oh, like I need to be suffering from the gun in order to run my best time. Well, like think of it this way. Let's say I, I gave you two scenarios and I said the scenario one, well, the, the scenario is a mile time trial. And scenario one is you must run the first 400 meters all out and then hang on for dear life and cross that mile finish line as fast as humanly possible. And situation two is go run a mile tactically the best you absolutely can and cross the finish line as fast as possible with no uh, requirement. I would bet my new lake house on the fact that the person who goes out and runs an all out 400 meters is going to suffer exponentially more than the person who doesn't do that and also run significantly slower. The person who ran tactical is going to suffer, don't get me wrong, but they may be comfortable for 600 meters, 800 meters, where basically this person has been in misery for 1400 meters. And so the writing's on the wall right there. What else do you need to know? Mm-hmm. And that's just an exaggerated version of what most people do in races. Well, I'm going to exaggerate one step farther, Kirk. Wow. Okay. I'm going to say you take yourself out and let's say you could race your clone. One of you had to start at half mile race pace. One of you had to start at two mile race pace for one full lap. And you both had to hold on for three laps. Two mile race pace would win 10 out of 10 times. 10 out of 10. And that's only one standard deviation to the side. One mile race. One of you starts out at 800 meter race pace for a lap. One starts out at two mile race pace for a lap. So one deviation each direction, half distance and double distance. You're catching your, I'm catching myself at the end of lap three already. And I'm dusting myself that entire lap four, I bet you. And the last lap is going to be a blowout. Oh, 40 meter, 60 meter win, 100 meter win. I would say the same thing happens if you had to do 200 meters at race at 800 meter race pace versus 400 meters at two mile race pace. The same thing is still going to happen just slightly later. If we know that to be true, why would we intentionally sabotage our races by doing the same thing, just extrapolated over a longer distance? If you're a 20 minute 5k runner trying to break 20 for the first time, running in the fives, the first half mile five minute, 550 mile pace, that first half mile does not compute. Running 530 pace, the first quarter mile does not compute. Mm-hmm. The only way to do it is to run at a pace, the first third of the race that you know, no matter what happens in this race, this is a pace I can keep. Yeah. And then you get to work. Yeah. For those who don't race a mile often, which I understand most of you don't, same thing with the 5k. Go out and run an all out mile to start your 5k and see how that last two miles go. You're going to be I hate to say it, you're going to be one to three minutes off your PR, yeah. I bet you, depending on where your where your general time frame is. But the other thing I want to touch on with this real quickly, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, is simply like if you're one of those who just don't know, you don't like get it, it doesn't click, or you're not into technology, or you just don't know your body. You've done this for years. It's like your MO. And I know half of you out there are that because I coach half, half of you out there, and it just seems to happen over and over again, no matter how hard we try that's really getting in tune with associating how you feel with also what your heart rate is doing. Like we talk like the heart rate is like the epicenter of truth as far as what physiological and metabolic demands are currently happening. 
and start understanding those things, like really keeping a tight eye on your watch when you're out doing hard efforts or even races and, and just like slowly gauging off of that, because that's going to be a good indicator, at least a starting point. And if you're one of those who constantly does fade home, I would really encourage you to start like using those tools to your advantage because you're going to be able to keep an eye on that come race day, which is going to help prevent you from being one of those who dies home all the time. And so I just like think that's just a quick sidebar that we should I should mention because um, it's a tool that's worth using and diving into if you are that type of person. Yes. Yeah. Mental toughness is never overrated, but how it gets applied is misconstrued. Correct. Being mentally tough in the first half of the race is not letting yourself be physically tough. For the first quarter of the race, the mental toughness is required to hold yourself back from having to be physically tough. And then at some point, that scale is going to tip. And now it's going to take mental toughness to keep your body holding it close to the flame and burning. But it's just as important to hold back early as it is to pour it on late. And so here's my challenge to people. I would say if you are a time trialer who has struggled ever to time trial well, or if you're a racer who struggled, I would like you to go out and run a 5K time trial. And I would like you to force yourself to run the first mile held back. Like conversational almost. Yeah. Tempo the first mile basically, and then go to work and see what happens. And if you fall apart still, then there are some other issues to uncover. But if you have yourself a pretty darn good time trial, that is step one towards that illuminating realization that I have to spend my money wisely in a race. You cannot front load your energy. At any distance, it's amplified the longer the race goes. Marathon race I'm talking about right now, 24-hour race we talked about today. It gets amplified there. But the same principles hold true in shorter races. They're just not as drastically seen. You have to hold back slightly initially until you learn your true work capacity. Yep. And I would extend that challenge one further. If you're not up for a time trial right now, your next interval session or your next tempo or threshold run, do the exact same thing. Start significantly slower than what you know you're capable of and methodically pick up the pace each interval or each mile on a tempo or threshold run, but start way, way, way within your means and then progress and see how you feel at the end of that and see what that last interval looks like. And then average out your interval splits and say, damn, that average was actually faster than the last time I did this when I went out harder or things like that. I would just extend it to your quality work as well. It's okay to start too slow and make up for it on the back end. And so like, just try that if you're one of those who go out too hot once in a while too. Um, It it just might help you learn your body a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I think we've said enough. There are races to go watch. If you're a track runner, watch Mo Farah's championship races. If you are a endurance athlete, go watch any ultra. Watch uh, Western States. Watch the first climb at Mont Blanc. The winner never wins the first mile. Those people are basically jawing and smiling and telling jokes and and doing all the distractions to hold themselves back. Yeah. I, I notice that every big long race like that, people are out there having a good time until they aren't, of course, but mm-hmm. you see it all the time. If you're an OCR athlete, go back and watch Hobie Call's U.S. National Series. On, uh, Spartan has him on YouTube and Facebook when he won every race in the National Series. Or go watch the most recent European Championship where John Albin, everyone false started, and he stopped moving and waited, and no one got called back. And he looked around, put his hands up, like, what are you guys doing? Laughed, took off last, and won by, like, I don't know, 
three or four minutes. One of my distinct memories with you and Hobie Call was my first U.S. National Series race in Seattle. He ended up taking second with a missed bell and dumped his bucket of rocks out. And we're about almost to the mile mark in the race. And me, you, and Hobie were running next to each other in about 10th place, 12th place. And you go, and you guys were just chattering like it was a casual run. And you said, Hobie, ah, taking it easy today, Hobie? And he goes, nah, man, it's a long race. All these people are going out too hard. And what happened? He would have won that race, barring those catastrophes didn't happen. And he had it figured out right from the gun. Mm -hmm. You guys were casually chirping. Well, I was so focused and so intense. And I faded back to 18th place, 17th place. I was way beyond my means. And look what happened. And you guys were just jabbering, having a good old time. So I witnessed that firsthand, point being. And then you all faded off into the distance. So there's examples of this even at the top end from the people we expect are the ones that are revving out from the beginning. They're running fast from the beginning. But again, don't conflate fast with hard. So thanks for bearing with. This is kind of like a big, long, soapbox, semi-loving rant today. But I think that there's just too many people out there right now who are misconstruing effort levels at the beginning of a race. And it's costing them so much time. And this is not even, this is my last sentence today, Kirk, but this is not just racing. This is training. If you're always having bad training runs, long runs, tempo runs, the easiest way to fix that is to just take your first 10 minutes slower. Yep. And then you're going to have a great run. So this is across the board. The only way to get the most out of your endurance is to build up throughout the effort. I agree. I don't know if there's anything else to add, but I think there's going to be a handful of listeners who needed to hear this and uh, and a bunch that probably already know it, but we just got to touch those few people. So I think that soapbox is worth standing on. Good. I feel tall up here. You look tall sitting there. Are you on your ball today or are you on your chair? Oh, I've been on the stool for every episode we've ever done. Since you've fallen off the back end? No, you fell off the back end of your ball once or twice. Or stool. Your chair. It's when I have uh, anything uh, performance material on, it gets real slick. That's <laughs> how you slip off the back. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. We made it under an hour today, Bracken. That's a record for us. Look at us. And we got two questions answered. We're just checking the boxes, Kirk. We'll keep that going, I think. Have a great week, folks. See ya. <laughs>